0: Thank you for joining the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast with your host, Clayton Craddock.
1: Born and raised in Binghamton, New York, Ron Tierno began studying drums at the age of nine years old. He later moved to New York City and an audition for Frankie Valli in 1978 led to a national tour to support his huge hit single, Grease. Numerous recordings and jingles followed and he later began subbing on Broadway in 1980. Ron later worked on several other shows and eventually was hired to do the first national tour of Cats in 1984. He was subsequently hired for the Broadway production in 1989. Some of the Broadway shows that he's worked on include The Pirate Queen, Oklahoma, The Little Mermaid, Gypsy, Mamma Mia, A Chorus Line, Barnum, Cats, Late Night Comic, Romance, Romance, Song and Dance, La aux Full, and Dr. Shivago. Ladies and gentlemen, Ron Tierno. Welcome to Broadway Drumming 101. My name is Clayton Craddock, and my guest today is Ron Tierno thank you for coming on my show i was looking forward to talking to you because your name has been popping up in other conversations i've had with people like paul Pizzuti and michael keller and i'm like man you know what i need to reach out to this guy so i'm glad you're here i want to find out so much about you because you know you've been around for a long time and i'm sure you can teach me a lot so thank you for coming
2: well thank you clayton thank you for having me it's an honor to be here and uh Uh, let's see where this goes.
1: (laughs) So you were born in Binghamton, New York. Correct. And what brought you to New York city?
2: Well, um, as a kid and because it's not that far away, my, my family would come to New York, um, a fairly regular basis. Matter of fact, my, some of my first memories of seeing music would be, believe it or not, I used to see uh, Gene Krupa at the Metropole, which is, uh, still there, that marquee is still there, but Gene Krupa used to play in the afternoon at like 5 o'clock, which is how I could get to go in with my dad, you know, and and see this, at that point, very old, old, tired-looking drummer. And and the reason, one of the reasons maybe was he was playing from 5 to like 2 in the morning. And uh, he used to alternate with um, like a show band, uh, and yeah, you know, all sorts of interesting stuff. Cozy Cole was there a lot and, uh, but it was sort of like a, and I don't even know, remember what year this would be. So it had to be the late 50s. Uh, and then also we would, every Christmas time, we'd go to see the Radio City Christmas show. So that was always a, a real treat. Ironically, uh, when I first came to New York, not, not right away, but a, a, it was like an emergency situation. I didn't know anybody at Radio City, but I got a call to come in and sub on the show. They needed a drummer. And uh, I, I came in and uh, the, the contractor was the percussionist. Uh, his name was Bob Swan. And he talked me through the book and we played the show. So it was... <laughs> it was uh, such a crazy thing because when the orchestra come up, came up out of the pit, the first I remember a, a series of chords. It started with as as the pit is rising up, just these these whole note chords. We weren't playing yet, but somebody's doing that, and I'm looking out in the audience, and I I saw myself out there as a kid, you know, and that's when it hit me that like wow, this is New York, and I'm here, and uh, uh, we got through the show. I mean, I I don't it didn't stop, so it what couldn't have been that bad, and they I did a couple of them, but. Uh, the music in those days too was much easier to do that you know you you didn't you didn't have the advantage of uh, having a video cam or a recording of the of the music and and uh probably the old timers would just sight read shows there was no requirement to watch and and whatnot and maybe later on there was but um uh that was my first experience but uh i other than that i'd never seen a broadway show so when John Redsecker called me to sub on Barnum, that was the first time my first Broadway show I had done. I'd never seen a Broadway show, so again I'm thinking back as to, you know, you you know, you'd, you'd ask how I how did I get started in this, and how many of us actually planned on doing this. My experience with Broadway was my parents playing the original sound, uh, the original cast album to. My Fair Lady and The King and I. So as a young drummer, that is not making me aspire to want to play a Broadway show, right?
1: Well, <laughs> let, me, let me ask you, What, what <laughs> you listening to those cast albums. You, I, I don't, some people now might say, oh my God, this is the greatest thing ever, I want to play Broadway. But this is, I guess you grew up in the 50s and 60s? Yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. more of a, you know, my, I'm more musically aware of the 60s, but I, I definitely, those are my first memories of music was inheriting my brother and sister's record collection, you know, so it was like the fifties rock and like, you know, Bill Haley and the Comets and uh, um, little Richard and Chuck Berry. And then um, my brother was into Dave Brubeck. So one of my first drumming uh, inspirations was uh, Joe Morello from take five. So, uh, so the lit, my listening to the Broadway shows is as a child. So it's not, I wasn't even thinking about being a drummer yet. You know what I mean? So I just didn't listen to it from a musical standpoint or a drumming standpoint. I just know I I could hum the tunes, but it wasn't something coming home from school
1: I would, you know, share with my friends.
2: <laughs>
1: Was the Beatles on Ed Sullivan a turning point for you as well?
2: Absolutely. Yep. Yep. It, um, yes, I, I remember actually watching the show. I remember seeing on the news them getting off the plane and about this band, you know, coming from England and all this screaming and everything. So I watched it, Uh, but musically, uh, let's see, I was already taking lessons about that time. Musically, it didn't grab me yet. The excitement did, but it didn't make me want to go out and, you know, start a Beatle band because again, I grew up listening to, you know, Joe Morello, my drum teacher was more jazz-inspired. He was a Philly Joe guy and, and uh, Max Roach. And um, in upstate New York in Binghamton, Buddy Rich would come through town every couple months. Whenever there was a tour, you know, they'd go. He'd, he was doing, you know, uh, bus tours, and they'd go from city to city. So they'd probably go, you know, New York, Binghamton, Rochester, Syracuse, and on out to the Midwest. And he came through frequently. So as I played more and more, you, you know when you see buddy rich you're you just it, it uh there's they they said when he passed there'd, there'd never be anyone else like him and that's certainly the case now musically uh, you know i i certainly grew from that and i didn't try to play like buddy rich but from a drumming standpoint watching ringo star play didn't again excite me to play like that you know uh it it's even those old 50s rock records If you you look at those drummers and you look at their sets, they're playing old jazz kits. They're playing their ride pattern, even even if it's a fast eighth note thing. They're playing on the ride cymbal and they're playing their hi-hat foot on two and four. They weren't playing matched grip and playing on the hi-hat, you know? Mm. So even now when I teach kids, I try to teach them to use all four limbs right away because if you start riding on the hi-hat, you don't use your left foot, you... uh, it makes it much harder to add it in later on.
1: So you started taking lessons in Binghamton at, at, uh, 10,
2: uh, actually nine. Yep. My, um, I've been, I was thinking back now to when all this started and I, I spoke to my sister recently and I said, you know, didn't you buy me bongos for Christmas when I was eight? And that sort of started it because I think I I must've liked them. And, um, I, I looked at my save. I'm a, I'm a, Saber of everything. So I have my first notebooks and all the books I studied out of. And my first lesson was in uh, 1961. So uh, I still have that stuff. And uh, and, you know, it, it's it's fun to look back on and, and, and think about how would you start because sometimes kids might bug their parents to take lessons. Sometimes the parents and I'm, I'm seeing this now because I'm teaching a lot of a lot of young kids. Sometimes they want to come to you, um, and I think now it's even harder to to get kids to to be inspired musically. Just like I was, you know. Again, the British invasion was. I think it created a whole generation of love for music, writing your own tunes, and and I I certainly we didn't even talk about that part, but I I was certainly into all that as I gr- I grew up and had the hair and everything. It was it was terrific.
1: Oh, really? But, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. Did you have a drum set like Ringo Starr? Like what was your drum set in the 60s? Uh,
2: I did have a actually I did have a Ludwig kit that was the Ringo Starr kit for a while and then I graduated to the Buddy Rich Rogers setup which I kept for many years. Um, in those days this it seems like now nowadays you can start with an electronic kit or you can buy a kid student model drum set very inexpensively, the full kit. And that was not the case when I was coming up. So my parents did it in the way that seems reasonable in hindsight. Start with a snare drum, you know, and then they got me a bass drum, you know, a used bass drum, and then uh, uh, a ride cymbal, and then a hi-hat, and then I think I even got a separate mismatched floor tom. And then we traded that all in for that first Ludwig kit,
1: you know, so that's that's early, early mid-60s. Did you play in a lot of bands? Or was it- uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. Rock, rock bands, jazz bands?
2: Yeah, no rock bands. Rock bands. Um, I played some jazz in school and some- uh, uh, There was a cultural center up there called the Robertson Arts. And uh, they had jazz programs that my teacher encouraged me to sign up for. So I had a good taste of that early on. As a, as a matter of fact- from a historical perspective, uh, the, the woman, uh, the, the pianist who ran that, her name was Claire Wood, wound up marrying Slam Stewart, the bass player. And uh, Slam, uh, when he retired, moved to Binghamton and uh, was involved in that Roberson Center. And uh, we, uh, later on, as I had a little jazz group that, that we played at Roberson, just before I was ready to come to New York, he was very complimentary to me, and he wrote me a nice letter of recommendation, and uh, he, was, he was a beautiful guy. But uh, what, what a person to see play live when I'd, I'd never heard of a, someone that sang along with their bass playing like that. And to hear it live, it was like, again, it was one of those mesmerizing moments, like when the first time you see your, your drum hero, you know, is to, to see a bass player take a solo, and you can't tell where the voice separates from the bass just it was just one it was so pure and a a beautiful sound
1: did you choose to go to a music school after high school
2: uh no i did not i went on the music school of the road i was gonna (laughs) i was gonna go to berkeley i was all set to do that and uh, a show band was coming through binghamton that had a six night a week gig in uh, washington dc uh and it was like um this is like chicago blood Soot and tears you know there are a lot of horn bands in the this is like 1970 and I had just gotten out of high school. So um, I also had draft issues to deal with. So I was waiting uh, to see what was going to happen. Yikes. So this road gig came up. This road gig came up and uh, I got to move to Washington uh, at 18 or 19 years old uh, with my own apartment, bought a car cash, had a gig six nights a week and uh, it was a pretty s- sweet start. So. Then I came back to Binghamton for a while, and lots of other things happened along the way. But I I kept putting off going to school, and I I figured, well, let me try New York first, and we'll see how it goes, and then then I'll go. I figured it's, it's always there if I need it, uh, and I just I just didn't just didn't do it. I still want to go now, actually, but because uh, I you know I've I realized oh I should have learned this, I should have learned that, but uh, uh, no, I did not go to music school.
1: So. Not going to music school, did you have, did you teach at any mu- mu- music schools at all? Like, did you, um, have you been able to teach well, I, any, I, any courses? I
2: there? studied, well, with uh, my teacher in Binghamton, Tony, I studied with him privately for 10 years. B- uh, SUNY Binghamton, um, which is now has a, is a great school, a state school at that time, was a very small school, didn't have much of a music program. And in high school, I used to sub into their, ensembles when they needed extra percussionists. And um, I taught for my teacher, Tony Mofreza, as, as a student teacher. And when I came to New York, I studied with uh, Samuel Lano and Bernard Purdy. And um, I did a, a couple drum classes that came up as opportunities. So I always liked the idea of teaching. Uh, a little later, when I was on the road, uh, I did a couple seminars at I uh, did one at Berkeley and uh, New England Conservatory on uh, drum machines at the beginning of that era. So I don't know if that's a that's a whole other thing to talk about. But um, when I was really at, at after I'd had some success uh, with Frankie Valli and traveling and recording, and then starting to dip my toes into to Broadway, uh, actually before the the deep dip of my toes into Broadway, I was. Really thinking that, oh my God, the, it's over for us because electronics are coming and this, this, this drum machine thing is, uh, is going to put us all out of work. And someone said, well, why don't you get one and you learn to program it and you be the one because you would know how to program it better than, than anybody. So that's a good idea. So I bought a Lindrum. I bought an uh, uh, Oberheim uh, DMX. It was a competing machine and um what i had done and this was at the same time i went out with cats so i was you know now looking at broadway as my as the future but at the same time i had these drum machines i wrote a a couple of duets for drum machine and drum set and i did those as a clinic when i was on the road with these with these shows because i was playing with the teachers and professors uh uh uh, at all these music schools we were always in the pit bands on the road because they would hire locally. So that's how I met them. And, um, that was a good introduction, uh, in, into that stream. But it's funny because when I came back from a year and a half of cats on the road and I came back to town, I figured, okay, so now I'll get back into recording and we'll get, you know, get things rolling again. And, uh, the drum machines had changed already. The keyboard players were, were, were on to new things, and they were doing all the programming, and my stuff was obsolete. Lindrum, uh, matter of fact, they came out with a follow-up machine. It's called the Lin 9000, and it, it bombed because it went from the Lindrum of being $2,500 to like five grand, and uh, I, I never bought one, but I figured, geez, I didn't even pay off the first drum machine and now we're moving on to this next thing and broadway started to really pop for me the money was getting better the work was getting better the shows were getting more interesting so i figured well from my standpoint that's where the future was going to be and and that's how i really
1: uh you know went full bore into it did you always try to maintain and stay ahead of of what was coming next well
2: i think the fact that i came to new york uh, sort of very young and I was, I was you know very impressed with the whole city it was a very you know it, it, I didn't take it for granted uh, so to speak you know and I um, I wanted to make a living at music and so because I was young I wasn't um, I hadn't settled down yet but I thought how can I possibly uh, you know support a family and raise kids playing drums you know because I didn't come from a musical family that said yeah you can go do that I came from um, you know a working class Italian family where my you know uh, my father had his own business and then he passed away um, actually when things were starting to go well for me so but he didn't have anything to pass on to me as far as a business but when he passed my grandfather sort of stepped in and he he's real old school Italian and he said, you haven't saved enough money yet. Come back here and get into business with your cousin. And, you know, so it, it uh, I, I really felt the that push to keep myself involved so that I could, you know, see a, a, either a trend or at least uh, my way of doing it was by practicing <laughs> is, you know, studying what was there, not just saying I could play it. I, I'd never turned down an opportunity to play or audition anybody and i look back now and i think of some of the the people i called and you know thought think i could do things whereas now i you know i i'd really be nervous and you know shed something but more you know but uh i i i was i think you know when you're young you're bold and you really stick it out there and do something but i did try, try to at least be realistic to say i have to uh be prepared for any of this so i i did it with hours of intensive practice, because I figured if I don't get it now, you know, for, and, it, and again, I had gambled. I hadn't gone to music school. What else am I going to do? So this was, uh, uh, as it turns out, now I look back and uh, I'm very comfortable that I, I go, well, I guess I did okay. I don't, I'm not, you know, rich or anything, but I, uh, uh, I'm satisfied. Whereas I, I remember being very tense and and nervous as a kid because I was so driven, you know, and ironically, you know, I watched Paul Pizzuti's uh, Your Your Thing with Paul, and he comes off exactly the way I always knew him, which was very relaxed and easygoing. And when you think of the things that uh, a musical director would want from the band or especially the drummer, because you have a very tight bond, there is someone who's fun to be around you know, like Paul is like that, Warren Oates is like that, you know, they're just, they're just a, a joyful in the way they play. And I think it makes them more relaxed and yet they're very confident in their skills. And uh, it's, that's something I look back and I, I feel I was pretty straight and too serious. I should have been a little more looser and relaxed in my approach, but um, the drive was the reason I was doing that. So you moved
1: to New York in the early seventies, correct? Yes, 1974. 74. Now, there was recording. There were, from what I just, uh, you know, talked to Michael Keller about, there were orchestras for CBS, ABC, and NBC. You had, you know, Radio City. You had tours that came through. And you had Broadway. Uh, And you had clubs. I'm sure you probably did all of that.
2: <laughs> a lot of, a lot of choices.
1: Did you see Broadway as something that that you wanted to do? That was a higher priority than like session work.
2: Uh, no, not especially not at the time, because uh, again, my first show was 1980, and that was that was or subbing, and that was Barnum, and I remember, you know, I learned the book and I watched it and I came and played it and I got approved and. He he gave me like two weeks in a row, and I thought I was going to die. I says, "Man, eight shows a week!" And then I looked at the check, and I said, "I could have made more playing a club date." So there was the first thing. Broadway was not high on the pay scale for musicians. It was not the priority gig, and the shows. When you think back, now Barnum was pretty cool because that's Cy Coleman, and he was he was a, he was a great writer. But um, until the you know, until Weber, Andrew Lloyd Webber sort of broke through with that British invasion of Broadway that, that he, he fostered, uh, that to me created the grounds of a new, brought in a new audience, and it allowed for new ideas to, to inspire better productions. Because, you know, you still see it now is that, that a, why would a producer take a chance on a, on a new show that no one knows anything about, when they can just, you know, remount a, a hit and they figure they got a better shot of doing that. It's happened so many times. I've seen shows come around two, three times now. I say, why do they keep redoing that thing, you know? But it's the it's it's a big, big investment. And in 1980, I just wasn't paying attention to Broadway. And I have a feeling that until Cats came along, um, there weren't really the big blockbusters, you know? Uh, Chorus Line was one. I know Chorus Line started in the mid '70s. Um, again, I you know saw a little snippet of it on TV, but I didn't it didn't inspire me to want to go see it. Um, uh, Hair maybe is the first big rock musical that might have interested my my generation of and, and as far as a drummer, and I knew I knew a lot of those songs. A bunch of bands played them, right? But um, no, it it it. It it wasn't until I started doing that, doing Broadway, that I I enjoyed it more. And I understood the nuts and bolts of it.
1: So, before you got to Broadway in 1978, you auditioned for Frankie Valley and you got the gig. You went out on a US tour with him?
2: Yes. It was his first uh, tour after the Four Seasons. So, it was his first solo tour. Uh, I was invited to audition because of a referral from Charlie Colello, who was uh, a hot producer in New York at that time. And, uh, you know, what made Charlie Colello? I didn't know where he came from, other than he was, he was calling me for jingles and, and recordings and stuff, and he was, he was really hot. But he had done the um, arrangements for Swearing to God. And when you think of the transition from the old Four Seasons stuff to Swearing to God, you know, and that horn arrangement and everything, it was like he just, he just brought Frankie into a whole nother area. So uh, I think Frankie was trying to build on that with his uh, solo career. And um, so I got that first shot at that. That was a, a real honor, and he was, a, he was such a gentleman to work for. And uh, he's still going, which is just, I, I can't get over that. He's still out there, you know, um, pretty, pretty amazing what a career he's had.
1: Well, speaking of career, so Barnum in 1980s, the first Broadway show that you were that you subbed on. And what was your first chair that you had on Broadway?
2: Uh, let's see. Um, uh, late. Uh, a show, I did a show called in 1988 called Late Night Comic. Uh, it came and opened. It opened and closed pretty fast. So that's why I had to think about it and and sort of look it up because I'd forgotten about it. But your first show is always a lot of fun, you know. And then when the reviews are not great and it closes, you know, everyone's disappointed. And, oh, my goodness, you know, there's such a good show. Why didn't it go anywhere? But uh, how many shows have done that? You know, how many times has that happened to us or, you know, all musicians cumulatively? It's a tough, it's a tough thing to do. But um uh, it's not that that show necessarily led to another show, but again, I was already on the circuit subbing and that just happened to be my first chair. Um, I did a show called, uh, romance romance that was in, um, that was like a year later. And that started as an off Broadway show in the flower district at a, like a, in a loft and it got picked up and, um, went to the uh, it's a, It's it used to be called the Ritz. The it's a Broadway theater. It's on. I forgot what it's called now, and I forgot what's there. It's a small house, maybe a 500 seater, but uh, uh, romance. Romance was there. Oh, geez, was it at the? Was it at the Ritz? I, I, maybe it wasn't even there. I'm sorry. Maybe it wasn't even there. I'm mixing that up with late night comic, you know. But anyway, romance. Romance ran for about a year, surprisingly and it was a fun little show but uh uh certainly you start to appreciate the broadway family aspect of of playing and and doing something right from the you know right from the ground floor all the way up and it actually you you're waiting for the bad review and it doesn't come and then you know it, uh, we had a, had a tony nomination didn't win anything but you know it, it was a sparse year that year. So it got nominated for things that it might not have against the bigger shows in, in a different year. So I think that helped us run a little longer as well.
1: So you were subbing at Cats at that time, well, after that closed, correct? Uh,
2: well, before before that time, I was subbing at Cats. So yeah, you, you know, uh, uh, Paul called me, it opened in the end of 82. And so I probably started there in, um, you know, 83 subbing. And then uh, I did the first national of Cats in 1980, end of 1983 or 1984, and I was out with that for about a year or a year and a half. So again, this is what I was talking about earlier about the changing of the guard of of Broadway. I mean, Cats had four national touring companies at one time going on. You know, in addition to Broadway, it was just mammoth. And uh, so after I did the national for a little over a year, I came back. And I would go out and sub on all the other companies to give those drummers vacation breaks because they were all running like, you know, full full, full bore, you know, just incredible.
1: You were saying how, how much of a phenomenon it was when you eventually wound up getting the gig when Paul left. It, you had it for how many years? Seven, 12?
2: Uh, Eleven.
1: Eleven. I did that's incredible, first of all, how did you keep your sanity after two or three years? Because I know Paul said, you know I'd do it for a couple of years, but he wound up you know staying for five, yeah. but you stayed for eleven uh or something like that he I can't remember how long he stayed but
2: eight, eighteen years total, so yeah, he left in the in the uh in the eighth year or the ninth yeah, about the eighth year, yeah, yeah, he
1: said he's going to stop at five and then he ran he stayed he until seven. A few more, yeah. <laughs> So how did you maintain your sanity and, and keep it fresh?
2: Uh, okay, well, that's a good question. And that's the, that's the obvious question anyone at, would ask of someone doing a long-running show. So I've en- answered it many times and thought about it because I'm going, you know, I don't know. It never, never bothered me. And, and this is coming from someone who was complaining about doing two weeks at Barnum. You know, <laughs> and, I, I, you know and I'm getting – and here I'm doing something for 11 years. How did I manage that? I think part of it was um, it, it was not on click. You had a different uh, orchestra every night, basically. You never knew who was going to be coming in. It was so comfortable. You know, there was rarely someone really knew that. Well, no, you you'd always have a new sub, I suppose. But it just sort of so many people played in and out of it. Uh, so it was very... Uh, you had to be aware of the differences in the, whether from the brass section or the reeds, you know, and make those adjustments to that. And then note what the, because we were backstage, note if there was a frustration in the conductor because of something going on on stage, and we had to make adjustments. You gotta be ready for that. So it's not like, you know, in, in, the, in the way the shows are so programmed perfectly and, and everything is so, you know, digitally perfect nowadays the only thing that stops a show is a is a electronic crash of some sort right whereas here you just you went on you managed you know what I mean and you you know if someone uh, uh, if a horn breaks you someone else jumps in and covers that part or, or uh, you know if you're <laughs> if your bass drum pedal falls and you just got to get through until you have time to to change it um, so I, I don't know. I just felt the freshness I think came in is that it was, there was no dialogue in the show. There was maybe one segment where at the, beginning of, at the beginning of a song there's a speaking part that lasts literally I don't know 10 seconds 10 or 15 seconds. Other than that it's music from wall to wall. So I think the hardest part would be waiting for the show to start. You know like that oh God I'm here let's go you know when I'm going to start. But man once that you know once that downbeat came you go into the world you go into the zone uh and it just sort of played itself it was very easy and relaxing to play from you know again from all that time but i i didn't feel um uh i mean i'm sure i did but I I, I I blocked it out as far as any boredom or or any of that um and again i would sup out when i when i felt that uh for instance i Stopped reading the book or using the book. Um, I was inspired by uh, the bass player who was, who was doing, like working on, on, on technical uh, things while he was playing. I'm saying, how was he doing that? So I was, in, I was, you know, that was the challenge, was how, can I dare I close the book, you know? Uh, again, these are things you wouldn't do now. But back then, uh, the, you did things to keep yourself into it and involved. What I found would happen is if I played maybe two weeks of, show, of shows straight without taking a show off, I'd have a little mental glitch. I'd forget something, you know, some little thing. Or was that the first time we did that or the second time? And then I realized, okay, I got to take a day off, you know? So it was those kinds of things that, that I forced myself to take a break. Uh, not that I wasn't subbing out when I had other gigs and stuff, but uh, it, was, it was just stream of consciousness. You just live in your life. And if you say, how could you do that for 11 years? Well, hey, we live long lives and you get up every day and you do routines. It was part of my routine. That's all.
1: Fascinating, man. You you know, I think you went into the heavy side layer when you were. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Perfect. We didn't know the show.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I tried to get there, man. I tried, but. I- <laughs> That's no. the aspiration. There you go. You know, but I tell you what. Uh, the longest running show I had was almost three years and I never got tired of it. I yeah. loved every minute of it. First yep. of all, cause I was getting paid very well and getting health insurance and a pension get to play drums for a living. I'm working with great musicians and I get to play in front of an audience every night. I mean, yep.
2: that's thrilling. That's what, that's what we do. You know, now, if you don't like the show or if you hate it, or if it's, if there is stress in the pit, yeah, then it's a little different. That can make it. That can make things painful and make it hard to come to work. I've seen people that with that kind of an attitude, you know, or for whatever reasons, if it's personal. Or I've seen uh, two chairs where you're supposed to be in a section and everyone's supposed to be, you know, facing the conductor. And two guys hated each other so much they would turn their chairs away so that they wouldn't have to look at the person next to them. And uh, there's, Yikes. you know. You know and I just glad, I felt glad I wasn't in in a, in a situation where you know I was dealing with anybody like that. Yeah,
1: ooh, so after cats when it, when you got the seven o'clock meeting on stage, <laughs> company meeting, seven o'clock, you're like, oh man did you did you see the end of cats coming
2: um we We talked about it regularly. I think the, the old timers who felt, you know, this is it for me. And, you know, they watched the numbers, the Broadway nu- gross numbers. Um, I didn't think of it, I think, quite so much in those terms. Plus, you know, when you get into, you know, 10 years at it, you know, you know, it's going to stop. So, and I still felt I was young enough that I I could get back out there and, and do other things. And the day that it happened, it was uh, the company manager, jumped on the podium at the end of the show, because usually everyone runs out in two seconds, and he realized if I'm not right there when the show ends, everyone's going to run out, and I want to tell them. So literally, the conductor, downbeat, da-da, and jumps off. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you something, because when you leave the theater, there's going to be a lot of press people outside, but I just want to let you know that the show is going to be closing on X and X date. Thank you very much. <laughs> oh, wow. So it was before, it wasn't even like walking into the show the next day and seeing the notice posted on the board, which is most, the way most people learn about it, right? It was literally after the, now it didn't, cl- that just they were announcing the closing. We still had a few months to go, you know, quite a few months as a matter of fact. Okay. But he just wanted us to know, so we didn't get caught off guard when we, when we left the theater. Okay. The, you know, so there it was. And I, you know, we're, we're, it was there was silence in the pit. Nobody cheered. Nobody cried. It was just silence. We just all sort of got up and went on our way and then let it let it sink in.
1: Was it a stunned silence or was it a just, you know, re-
2: I, I think it was a stunned silence. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, you know, no one ever jumps up on the podium at the end of the show to make some sort of an emergency announcement, <laughs> you know, or this is a fire drill, leave the theater immediately. This was you know, uh, f- news flash, you know. So, it, yeah, you're, whoa, okay.
1: After Cats closed, then what did you do?
2: Uh, okay, so then, I, I before Cats, I wasn't subbing on a ton of shows. Here and there, and I was still, you know, had other th- jobs going on and gigs that I was pursuing. So, once Cats closed, I realized, okay, now I'm sort of starting over. This is like, going into the Twilight Zone for, and then coming out a generation later, you know, and like, okay, wow, I got to go, go back out in the real world. The good thing was, and here was the camaraderie of the business, is that I think anybody that subbed for me during the sh- during the run or even just came to watch the show and, I don't know, maybe I was nice to them or something, everybody called me to sub on their shows. So I literally had... Five shows uh, going fairly fairly soon as subs. After that, thanks to thanks to that you know generosity of of payback, and um, and then of course I realized well this is the way Broadway really works now because every one of them was totally diverse, and you have to do a lot of homework and you got to be prepared. So I felt it was my welcome to the you know the the modern age of of Broadway that we're and then you have been dealing with now.
1: Hmm. Uh, you, did you get another show shortly after uh, subbing around, or N-
2: not shortly after? I, I did a couple, and again, you know, things that didn't run. I did a um a revival of Lacage in two thousand five, and then uh, Doctor Zhivago in twenty fifteen. Uh, that was another one that you know they it was a big budget show, and it you know opened and closed very quickly. Um. Yeah. Did you even know it was a Broadway show? No. (laughs) That's how fast it came and went.
1: 2015? That was like recently.
2: 2015, yeah. Damn.
1: Yeah, it was at the Broadway theater. As far as your longevity in the business, what do you attribute
2: that to? Mm, That's hard because I'd want to say it's because I was really helpful to the conductor and I was really easy to work with. Um, I tried to do that. But I look back, and I, I I I look back, and I sometimes say I could have done that better, you know. I I I from what I see now, the way drummers approach it, because like I said, it, you know, it was just a gig that came up, and you'd learn the book and you'd go in, but the homework and the amount of involvement that drummers take in the show now, uh, it seems to be much deeper, and uh, I didn't get that until a little bit later, you know what I mean? And I, I don't know if that's a historical perspective or if it's that I really didn't want to do Broadway shows. And, you know, as I got older, maybe then I go to, oh, well, now I do. And I realized the amount of work I just didn't have the love, the passion that maybe people are coming with now. And I and I'll say this, too, is that I, I, if they are coming with passion to play on Broadway as a drummer, it's because of the shows you know, I mean, ain't too proud. I would have loved to play it. I mean, those, those tunes and everything that must've been a ball. Hamilton. Um, uh, I mean, there's just a, you know, a, a lot of new things. I look and I go, Oh man, that, that would inspire me if I were a young person coming up to want to play those things. Cause they're, they're drumistic and they're a lot of fun where, uh, if you're, like I said, if you're, if you've, if you're thinking Broadway's my fair lady in Oklahoma and Oklahoma and stuff, you're, you're, you know, I, I would play some of these tunes and I go, man, it's just a show too. And that's, you know, what's the big deal? This isn't fun. I, I didn't, you know, practice and study and be inspired by these great drummers to play this because if I played what I was inspired with, if I'm doing my Tony Williams licks <laughs> in Oklahoma, I won't be working, right? So, so that's the other thing is you've got to have that musical outlet to, to play and do what's right for the show. I guess that's what it would be, is is that I still felt I'm going to put a little of myself in here. You know, what I mean? I'm going to put, I've been working on this little gad thing I got. I'm going to put that in there. Shouldn't have done that in certain situations because musically that wasn't right. You got to do, you know, as a sub, you got to do it the way the, the 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 chair does it. And you got to make sure it musically fits. So uh, I, I think, again, that's an area where I would be a little more respectful of the, of the craft, you know?
1: If you were talking to a bunch of young drummers, which you're actually doing right now on this podcast, what advice would you give to a young drummer slash percussionist starting out in the business today?
0: If you like what you hear on the show, subscribe to the Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter at BroadwayDrumming101.substack.com. That's substack, S U B S T A C K.com. The Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter is your one stop shop for everything you'll need to know about playing drums for Broadway musicals. When you subscribe to the newsletter, you'll learn about what it takes to be a successful pit musician with content delivered directly to your email inbox two to three times a week. For $5 a month or $50 a year, you'll have a backstage pass to the world of a Broadway drummer playing on a hit show. As a paying subscriber, you'll receive behind-the-scenes access to the life of a musician who makes a living on Broadway. You'll also be able to read every post, not just those occasional free ones. You'll get access to all newsletter issues in the archives, and have an ability to participate in subscriber-only comments and events. If you become a founding member for a gift of only $75, you'll receive discounted private drum lessons and a 25% discount on future promotional products. If you'd like to make a direct contribution to the production of this show, you can reach us at Venmo at Clayton-Craddock, Cash App at Syncopated, that's C-I-N-C-O-P-A-T-E-D, or PayPal at Clayton-Craddock. Any amount of support will be appreciated. Thank you for listening.
1: If you were talking to a bunch of young drummers, which you're actually doing right now on this podcast, what advice would you give to a young drummer slash percussionist starting out in the business today?
2: Let me think about this because there, there's, there's a lot of obvious things, you know, that, that we, we we probably heard. I mean, I, So again, I've, you know, I've given this some thought, but you, you obviously have to be super prepared. So we've already said that, right? Uh, But the ability to come in new to something with your eyes and ears totally open because you're prepared. Uh, I mean, you know that old situation where you're, if your head is in the book too much, there's one of the big complaints, you know, because you'll ask, well, how did my sub do? Well, you know, he or she didn't get a head out of the book and they weren't watching me enough. Again, a good, young drummer especially is going to know the importance of that communication with the with the conductor. Uh, Secondly, uh, I would say uh, use your peer group to make friends, not just with other drummers, because you'll get some subbing situations. But, you know, probably the, 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 the most important person when you come out of music school is someone who's writing stuff or is a aspiring to be a musical director that's the per- that's the person you want to be you want them to think of you when they're going to do some sort of a workshop it's not paying any money and I don't know where this is going to go but man if you do that to the right person and you take it put your trust in them to say okay I'm with you what do you want me to do well it's this about it's this style it might be this or that and and then boom you, you never know what you have you, you know next from that I mean it could be you know the next uh, I remember hear, hearing a story about that with uh, uh, Jeff Potter about rent, you know, and um, uh, I'm sure there's a lot of shows like that where, you know, you, you, you didn't realize that this thing is just going to explode. And if you're there at the beginning and you're the right one that was willing to hang with them,
1: uh, then you you reap the benefits. What would you tell someone that is starting to sub? What it's like to receive notes and what it means to, uh, oh, just tell me about your note receiving experience.
2: Okay. Very, very good. Yep. I I mean, a whole bunch of situations are running through my head because there are some MDs who you could have played an awful show and felt bad about yourself. And they were so supportive and nice in their notes. And there could be other conductors who one in particular, who wrote down during the show, every time I messed up a little something, I'd see him going for his pen and he'd be writing this down. And I got two pages of notes that were bordering on, I don't want to say abusive, but I was, I was just so assaulted. I felt, it was. did you have to go that far in your nastiness about the way I played this one thing, you know, so, uh, and, and so the way I took that, I, cause I wasn't fired. I was, you know, I, I, first of all, is you get a good night's sleep, let that roll off. Don't do not let it end your career. So it took me a little while to get, you know, take a few deep breaths and say, okay, I'm coming back in for another date and, uh, I'm going to take those notes and I'm going to work on it and give, you know, let's see what happens. And the next time it was better, you know, and the time after that it was better. I mean, it, 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 it was a sh- kind of a show. It didn't really become easy, uh, all the way. It was just, a, it was a tricky show. So, um, that's an That's the other thing is that to persevere through that. Uh, I remember one drummer who was asking me to sub, uh, I was referred, to him and um, another, you know, another fairly difficult show, and his opening line to me is, "Now, this is really going to take a lot of work." And he says, "If if if you don't think you can handle it, don't waste my time." Okay, you gonna as, are you gonna accept that challenge or not? I accepted the challenge. Okay, I'm going in there. So you got to have that kind of attitude. You got to be strong of will, and you if again, if you come to the game prepared you know you can play your instrument, then these are just the little dings that you just gotta sort of get over and, you know, oh, okay, I didn't realize that. I th- I think the biggest thing um, that you'll never, it's really hard to prepare for, and maybe you can hit me as to what you do in a, in a new show to prepare for this, but uh, understanding the dynamics of, that are different, you know, because we all play differently. This is, and we're talking acoustic drums now. So, uh, I'm trying to look at the drummer and and thinking now how hard or light is that person playing because i got to sort of be like them, you know? So that to me is always a difficult thing because uh, I know if you play too loud, they don't like it, even if it's just the musicians around you, you know? So you can create a lot of enemies in a pit if you do that when you think you're doing a great job
1: my first Broadway show was actually on stage and there was a plexiglass in front of me and it was mic'd. So it was a little bit different. And and my, well, actually, Lady Day was on stage, but Ain't Too Proud was in a booth. So I didn't have to worry about playing too hard or too soft. Of course, you had to play at a certain level because you still have to satisfy the sound man or sound woman who's out there mixing the show. Because if you play too loud, they know that, you're playing too loud, especially when a sub comes in. They like they might be a basher, and they may, may, may play too loud. But I want to go back to when you first started in the 80s. Um, like a show like Aladdin, when I watched John Redsecker play Aladdin, I, 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 his drums are mic'd, but they're still in the pit. Um, from your experience of playing back then, uh, knowing how to play at a certain dynamic level, um, I guess you, some, that's something that you had to make, basically concentrate on very specifically since you were in a pit. Did you uh, see a progression from that kind of setting to now where you're playing in pits? And how did you adjust to that?
2: Well, I think now that I think they're used, to, there are more rock shows. So again, I came from an era where the sound people weren't used to mixing rock shows and they weren't used to putting plexiglass up and they weren't, you know, there was an orchestra in a pit and the reason you were in a pit that was open was so that sound would get out. And as time, as the, as the, as the sound got better and the sound design, they spent more money on it uh, uh, and body mics came into play for, for the stage, uh, the, the level of mixing the sound of the band was more and more important. So the, so uh, you didn't have to hit a cymbal crash so loud so that they could hear it at the back of the house because it was going to be mic'd, Or if it was a loud section, they could bring it up or bring it down. Um, so, But you're still, if it's an acoustic situation, you have to think about what you can, can control in the pit. And then your notes would come from the soundboard to the conductor. Uh, and I even know shows, uh, you know, this is maybe more common now, but the uh, conductor would always tell the sound person who's playing certain key chairs where there's volume differences. Not necessarily good or bad, but just they they, they probably had their markings. Okay, Tirano's in. Okay, we better do this to the, you know, <laughs> you know and this number or whatever. So, um but I think in the, in the modern shows, they prepare for that better, you know? And my first experience of that to where I was really comfortable with it was Mamma Mia, where, you know, you're in, a, in a, an enclosed booth designed for that. The, 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 the ABBA musicians wanted a full-out rock sound. Hit the drums as hard as you can hit them, you know? And, and it was very freeing in that sense. Because you could play it to get that authentic rock sound, and if you got a a big fat backbeat and a splashy hi hat, you could hit it as comfortable as you you know you felt without uh, really offending anyone. So um, I was uh, that was fun to always play that show for that reason. And I think modern shows are that's sort of in the writing in the design now. They take that all into account, which I'm actually happy for because. If you're doing a rock-oriented show and they want you to play as if you're in a, in a, in a, uh, in a string quartet volume, it's not going to have the impact. Uh, and there are times where there's a case of it's drum set and strings, you know, and it's all open. And so, and if it's a rock tune, well, how can I, I can't get a sound, you know, if I'm going to drown out the strings or it's going to bleed. Um... But I, I think that, again, in the sound design now, it's much, uh, it's much more taken into account. And when I do see shows, I don't, I don't see a lot of shows that often, but the sound is just spectacular out in the house. And I, I don't think that was the case on, on shows when I was doing them early. As a matter of fact, uh, if anything, if I would take a show off at Cats and go out in the house and watch it, I was disappointed. I thought, you know, we're, we're thinking about all this little minutia back there. And it's not, you know... You don't even notice it.
1: Have you recorded many cast albums?
2: Uh, no, just a, just a couple. Just a cu- and, and, oh, okay. So that brings up another story. I don't know where you're going to go with that. But, the, yeah, the cast albums I did them, the way you did them, you played the show. Just run it top to bottom because they only had so much money and it was very little in, in the way of worrying about what the drums sounded like. And let's just get through it. And then put a lot of reverb on it when we're mixing it so no one can hear all the little stuff anyway.
1: <laughs> and the vocals are way high and the the music is way down. When I go see certain shows, I I I feel that they mix the vocals really hot and the band really low. And you like you said, you're wondering why you're doing all the stuff. I played a triangle in that part. I don't even hear it out there. But for the shows that I've done recently I've I've been very pleasantly surprised at the way it sounds. Like you said, modern shows today, they have speakers everywhere and uh, subs and speakers in front. It's like a rock show. Sometimes it's too loud. Maybe I'm just getting old. <laughs> like I saw a show recently. I'm like, oh my God, it's so loud. But that you know, it was a rock show. But in any event, uh, there are a lot of musicians that don't see the shows that they play in because when they see it from the audience, they don't hear that guitar thing that they're doing or that uh string thing and they get disappointed but it's a lot better now but doing a bunch of shows just curious as to what you found to be the most difficult show you've ever played
2: well um i would say that's uh, lion king a lot of fun to play but uh stressful and this is at the, the in the original uh Version with 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 Tommy Igon is at the New Amsterdam. So you know, I, I'm, maybe things have changed now. But first of all, he's very tall. I'm not that tall. And you, one of the things you do as a sub is not make too many adjustments to anybody's setup. So you know, I could barely reach the bass drum on his setup that that he had. Uh, and the way he um, he wanted a. A real studio sound so he's using those GK uh, headphones where everything is really super super isolated and yet I'm hitting these drums for the first time I can't tell if am i playing too loud am I not playing loud enough uh, I don't think they had uh, AVM like presets on the uh, on the mixes back then uh, I could adjust but I could only adjust as I'm sort of playing so I, I I don't know that that we could save it so that the next time I came in I could get the same thing so just the physical setup and even though you're sort of in front of the conductor, he was like, you know, eight feet up, like right here. So you're playing like this, looking, you're looking straight up. So it was a little uncomfortable in my neck, my legs weren't comfortable. And then he had these very cool tom-toms. I don't even know what the name of them, uh, I don't know what brand it was, but they were like a tacked head. On the top, so it was sort of like a hand drum, and uh, I don't know if that was custom or someone puts some them out. It's not like it's not like a wood rim tom, but tacked over the edge, and very tight. So I guess it's to give you a hand drum quality because there's so much uh, organic stuff going on in that show. Uh, but ironically, when you're if you're not used to playing, and you're playing a lot of toms there, the spring is something you, you've not used, you're not used to feeling. So your first few times playing that show, you're playing these tom-toms as if it's, it feels like a snare drum the way the sticks are popping off and it really does fluster you in addition to all these other things going on, you know? So, um, I would say that was my, that was the most difficult, uh, show a, a lot of fun to play, certainly, you know, uh, drumistically, but, um, Again, not on, not on click and very organic, great band that uh, they were playing all over the place. There was so much going on, you know, with them. So depending who was in, they took a lot of liberties. Tommy took a lot of liberties at the time. And do I take those liberties or do I not? Do I play it the way he played it the last time or, you know? So, so you got to find your, again, find your place as a sub, but in this case, not necessarily feel... You gotta, you, know, you gotta show them all your shit and try to play like Tommy Igo if that's not the way you play. And just you know, hope they like it and hope it works. So, so there are challenging shows like that where you sort of have to, you have to pace yourself as to how you're gonna approach it. And that, that's, again, so that's why it was tricky.
1: Speaking of going into sub, especially for someone who is very tall or maybe someone shorter than you and they have their drums set up differently, um you know it's different from you having your own show where you can set your own drums up but sometimes you can run into problems where you might uh play differently and it might affect your your limbs and the reason why i bring that up is because after playing a show for 11 years at cats you need to set up your drums uh in a a way that's not going to cause you any long-term physical pain How did you go about avoiding that, uh, doing the same thing every night, you know, avoiding carpal tunnel or tendinitis or any other kind of drumming injury?
2: Well, that is a great question, because uh, I had one incident where I had a pain in my wrist. Did I have was it a uh, no, it didn't develop into a I have I've had a ganglion cyst before in my wrist and that was not from the stresses of playing a repetitive show. It was from something different, I think, carrying a cymbal bag in my hand or something, where, where literally you get this little bump and it's, oh, it's just a gangling cyst, it'll, it'll go away. But I had actual pain in my right wrist during some point during the run. And when I figured out what it was, uh, it, it, it was the fact that everybody or half of the pit would walk in next to my drum set like right next to me, and quite often, kick my cymbal stand. This will seem, I don't know if this will seem stranger if you can relate to this, but I was on such an automatic way I played, I didn't realize when that would happen. So, if someone inadvertently kicks my cymbal stand, it just turns it a little bit, it changes your, your hand approach to the cymbal, you know? And, and that's what I realized when I was real, when I realized I, I need to Make sure this is in the same exact spot at the same angle, uh, because I couldn't figure else out what what it was, and that was it. So once I got it straight, and I straightened my wrist out, I didn't I didn't twist it to get to the symbol. Uh, I never had another problem, and I and I am very aware of that uh, ergonomically because as a drummer, it's very common to get back problems. I think lower back problems, especially if you're sitting on a drum stool without a back on it. Which I mean, now there are. You know they're more it's more common to see those uh, backs on the stools but you really can't play that way you, you know it's good only good for in between and i wound up getting one of those at cats because you know you could still slouch very easily and i wanted to make sure i my posture was good um so that was something at first i think that made me very aware of uh, ergonomics and that thing with my wrist but after that Nothing. I could practice eight hours a day. I could play the same show. Everything was great. And that was the one incident regarding playing that I had with my hands. I haven't had anything before or after.
1: Speaking of gear, what kind of gear do you use? Uh,
2: it's funny because in this today, now, it, you, you, you so rarely need drums, even when you play in clubs. You certainly don't need them in shows you need to have a set for your gigs your outside gigs and uh so i'm not that fussy about stuff because i don't get to use it that often i'll buy a new kit and then i i you know i realize i played it a handful of times and i want to i want to try something else but i'm not playing my own stuff other than symbols you know i'm i'm sort of you know very aware of that cuz i always bring those to gigs but um I'm into small drums. Always was, always into, always into a four piece kit. Uh, With Frankie Valley, I, I, I expanded to a 22 inch bass and, you know, a rack of toms, but um, generally I'm a, I'm a four piece kit person. Uh, And for practicalities in the city lately, I've been using um, a nesting kit that Maxwell's makes, which is, which is where I teach and they have a nice nesting kit that is, is great. It's a, it's a little small on the bass drum because it's a 16-inch where you can use a lifter. But, but with that lifter, it feels like an 18 or a 20 because, you know, it's not sitting on the floor. You get the whole drum off, and you can still tune it down a little bit. So I don't mind that for a lot of the gigs I'm playing. But other than that, I'll use um, – uh, I have a – snare drums will mix. I have a, cra- a nice Craviato snare. I have uh, – I always seem to go back to the Ludwig 400, the classic you know, metal, metal framed, um, five and a half inch drum, that's just fine for me. So, so I guess in that sense, I'm not too gear oriented, you know, um, and, uh, if I were recording more now, I I think I'd be more aware of that, more aware of the different heads and all the, the different things that you can do now. But, uh, I'm an as, as needed kind of a person when it comes to, you know, getting something new. If I, see something, and I go, oh, wow, I don't have that. I'll add that to my stuff, but not too not too fussy about that.
1: Speaking of adding things, back in the 70s, did you ever have a drum set with an 8, 10, 12, 14, 16, 18, and 20-inch toms and a 24-inch bass? Were you ever that kind of drummer?
2: Uh, I had the... I thought you were naming one of my sets there because I had, <laughs> I, had a sling, I had an endorsement with sling on once and I, I, I had an 8, 10, 12, 14, and then I had two different bass drums. So, I had a 22 for rock stuff and I had a 20 because, again, that was my size. I was more comfortable with it. And, um, but I didn't go into the real big, like the double floor tom things. No, no. Okay. That, was easy. That, that configuration was enough if I needed that sweeping tom sound. Uh, and the rest of it's just too big you know I didn't have a truck I didn't want to carry all that stuff around.
1: Did you take the bottom heads off of the time? Uh, I
2: did I did in the 70s uh, because that was a popular thing to do and which is why all those you know if you listen to recordings from the 70s they sound very boxy because that's what they were it was a it was a loose head with tape on it and no bottom and go.
1: (laughs) I think I remember my first drum set was a -A slingling and I used to put I think they were called dead ringers on the, on the toms maybe it's on the bottom of the heads. I I forgot what I did, but yeah, that sound so weird. I remember just looking at my drums and, I, and they were made with bottom heads on them, but I took the bottoms off. It's like so weird to think back, but did you ever have North drums? I don't know if you remember those drums. They were like,
2: I, I, I didn't own a set, but I did a, uh, I did a record uh, using the North toms. Really? But it's funny because I, I, listened to it it was never re- reissued in um uh in cd uh and i didn't realize this but i'm looking back at my my limited discography you know and my favorite records none of them came out after vinyl or, you know it, other than vinyl so you can't find they're very hard to find so mm. the frankie valley album uh, i don't think came out cd it's it's come out uh in have split up taking certain songs and, and, and used them in compilations with other things. But the original album was never released in CD form. At least not that it? I know.
1: What was it called?
2: Uh, Frankie Valley is the word. So it had grease on it, but Greece was on the grease, you know, the, the, the Saturday Night Fever album. So who wanted that song again? So the album sold, you know, like 20 copies and it took a year to put it out. Anyway. So, um, it was good. It was well done. It was interesting to work with Bob Gaudio, uh, who's was the, the really the, you know the genius behind all of those uh, Four Seasons tracks and uh, uh, very unusual, very California working style. You know, very low key. We just went in the studio all day long. Nothing was written down, and he just wanted to experiment. You know, because he could afford to do that with with the way he had the tracks uh, and the the way he wanted the drums played. You know no, I don't want to back beat on two and four. I want to, you know, give me a snare on two, and then I want and four and on two toms. And I want it in this order. You know what I mean? So he was, he would experiment with, with that sort of thing because, again, they're always looking for that unique groove, that unique uh, little approach to something.
1: So you were, you were the drummer on this album. I'm just looking it up right now. Frankie Valley is the word, right?
2: Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't even know what the title was because is it Grease is the word? It's like it, it says Valley dot 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 is yes. the word.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so, you, so Grease is on this. You played on that song.
2: Uh, no, I didn't. So, that was recorded oh. by the Bee Gees, did that. That's, oh, okay, uh, okay. So, that was their thing. And, and, and he sang on, sang on that and they let him put that on his album. Oh. And uh, it, it didn't help the sales because, uh, as I said, everyone already had bought that song and, and no one, After the season of the summer of Greece, no one wanted to ever hear that song again.
1: (laughs) But you played on Needing You, Sometimes Love Songs, Make Me Cry, Without Your Love, Over Me, Save Me, Save Me. Do you remember any of these songs?
2: A little bit. Yep. Yep. And uh, uh, one of them, my favorites are when, you know, what they put on top of them. So there's one of those songs you just mentioned uh, has a great solo by Hubert Laws that they brought in. And I'm going, oh man, I'd love to have been there to, to hear that. Um, there's another record I did with uh, a singer who's, who's still around named uh, Marty Lebus, L E B O U S. She spells it now Marty Lebeau, because people had trouble pronouncing it L E B O U S. She has a band called the Martes. They play around town, a lot of great uh, studio players and people of, you know, my generation back then that, that, that are doing stuff. But she had an album, um, when she was 18 that was produced by Charlie Colello. Uh, and, uh, they had, it seemed an unlimited budget because the Brecker brothers were on it. Will Lee was playing bass. Uh, there were strings, there were horns. And that's the album I did use my North drums on. And that's (laughs) called, uh, lady wants to be a star by Marty Liebus. And if you can ever find that, I think it's, it still reads great. And there's a killer Mike Brecker solo on that. And um, it was a, it was a fun record because although Charlie Colello was a great arranger, he, and I was very young, he let me play. He said, you know, nah, go for it. I'll tell you when it's too much. Or so it was very re- relaxed sounding and fun to play. Whereas you, you know what those dates are like when you go in and they, they, They want just this particular thing and don't do anything else. And, you know, but I just remember that as a great experience and playing with those, those players, man, that was such a treat.
1: Hey, I'm just looking it up on YouTube. (laughs) I can't wait to
2: hear this. Might be hard to find. (laughs) The one song, uh, there's one song I know was reissued. Uh, It's called for David. You might find it under that because someone picked it up and re-released it in a, uh an album of a compilation of background singers you know that you don't know of or something like that but the song for david is a is is one of the tunes i love and it's it's about her brother there we go yeah so it's on that record whatever that record is um
1: uh it says two ladies on that two ladies too slow to disco yeah, oh, no. so that
2: was the theme. That was the theme for that compilation. And they just picked off one of those, uh, one of the songs from her album for that. That's the only way I can find it because, as I said, that was 76. And it was just vinyl, no cassette, no, D- no CD, mm. no re-release, you know. And I'm going, man, you know, that's it.
1: Uh, going back in time. Yep. Uh, the seventies, eighties in New York city, were you part of, uh, radio registry as well?
2: Yes. And, uh, I came to New York, as I said, in 1970, the first thing I did was I went to join registry. Not that anyone was going to call me, but I figured I got it. You know, I was told you got to be on there cause that's where the studio work was. And, uh, ironically, what was pretty cool, uh, I had met the owner when I was signing up and, uh, he took a liking to me and he's, you know, he could tell I was young and he just assumed I wasn't working. So he says, would you like to come in here and work as an operator for, you know, one or two days a week and you'd learn uh, who the contractors were and who the players were. And I thought, well, that's a good, idea. actually, I didn't want to do it. I thought ah, maybe that's a good idea. And I'm, you know, in hindsight, that was such a cool opening for me because I really right away learned who was working where the studios were uh how the whole system worked uh and it was a it was a great learning experience
1: uh ray marchica would told me about how all of that worked it was uh 212 ju what is it again uh, ju28800 yeah i still i
2: still have a couple, <laughs> have a couple of trap cases with that that uh uh imprinted on a on logo and I realize I'm, I'm sort of embarrassed sometimes to to have someone look at see my name and this phone number with these two letters in it you know <laughs> and they, you know because I'm thinking this guy must be a hundred years old what's he's doing what's he's doing with those but the other thing was in the 70s the recording studios especially the jingle houses you had to bring your own trap case weird thing they had the bass and the toms Maybe snare drum. I don't know. But every every drummer who's doing jingles for certain studios, not all of them, but the ones that were jingles, made you bring your own trap case. So your cymbals and and stands, a weird thing. Yeah, very very weird. Uh, It faded fairly quickly. But there were there were uh, the the busy studio guys had probably two and three sets of trap cases that were deli- there was a delivery service and you would book them and say, okay, at four o'clock tomorrow I need this trap case at associated and uh, then the next morning I need it over at uh, A&R uh, and for a date and at registry when I was working there as an operator, this is what you saw what the, how the how busy and crazy things were in the music business because there were literally you know hundreds of dates every day Really? That you weren't playing on. But, you know, maybe not hundreds, but it felt like hundreds when you were busy and the phone's ringing like crazy. There's eight lines and you're literally booking session after session after session. Uh, Not all records, by the way. I mean, most of these were jingles and probably most of them were demos. So if you think back now, people, everyone does a demo in their house, right? And they can make a great track. Back then, every ad that was going to be run or competed to get on television or radio they had to have a demo for it and most times they'd hire at least a rhythm section to play for those uh many times the rhythm section would be hired and they'd bring in four or five songwriters and they would pass out their tune their version of this product that ever whatever you're promoting okay you know so you're singing about soap and and you know and we're basically playing the track They'd take their music, thank you very much, they'd leave, the next songwriter come in and give you their chart and you'd play this next 60 second spot. Um, that was one way of doing it. If one of those went final, they would now call you back in, they'd probably uh, hire an arranger and uh, maybe enlarge the size of the band and you would do the jingle as a final. After the final is done. They could cut it into, you know, you might do a 30-second and a 60-second. And uh, three months later, you go to the union, and you'd pick up a check of stacks like you'd, you'd just hit the lotto. Where would all these checks come from? Well, the residuals, because in different parts of the country, it would be done differently, or they would put a different voiceover on it, and you'd get paid for that. If they re-recorded it in Spanish for Puerto Rico, you'd get paid for that a residual rate, you know, so we're talking $30, you know, and they could run it for 13 weeks. But uh, again, Jingles paid, you know, less than $100 an hour, but that one hour could could run, you know, you could be making money from that for, for years. So it was a very lucrative part of the business. And again, when people say, well, you know, how interested were you in Broadway? Well. Not very because, you know, this is where the gold was, you know, and it was fun because you're in and out. And I never did enough that I got tired of that because you're playing with great players. The challenge was, can I nail it right away? Can I be with the click? Uh, And then you're out the door, you know, no pressure, no two and a half hours, no notes. You know, it was either good or bad. And if it was struck gold, you'd come in and do it again. And, you know, um, it, was a, it was a great, great payday.
1: I'm shaking my head here because I'm thinking about you had the arrangers, you had the copyists, you had the musicians, you had the engineers, you had the producers, you had the studios, you had the cartridge people, you had the, 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 the instrument, instrument, instrument makers, you had this, the music stores everyone's making money and it It was was a massive industry and and you know the ecosystem was huge and again I I understand things change just like with the drums like you said earlier the drum machine came out you had to learn to adapt I know people like Jimmy Braylower is his name and Sammy Merandino adapted to it and they made a whole bunch of money he was Sammy was telling me that he's like yeah, I can't go on tour with you, Cameo, because I'm making the same amount you're going to be paying me during the, for a week. I can make that during the day, one day, probably one hour. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you have to adjust. And today, you know, we're doing a, pod, a podcast using technology and people have to adjust. I just, I'm kind of shaking my head that looking at Broadway and how the ecosystem for Broadway is just as huge. You have... The wardrobe, you have the, the, the detergent that you have to use to clean the wardrobe or to go to the dry cleaner. and They got to get paid. And you have the restaurants around from people that come in. You got people delivering stuff to the actors. And, and of course, you have the sound and the lights and the, the ushers. And there's a lot of money to be made. I just hope it uh, returns back to 2019 levels because everything was pretty nice. Yes. And I, I hope that the young drummers that come in get the same opportunities that we had. Cause it was, it was nice. I think I, it's going to get back there again. And, I uh, do
2: too. I do too. And it's probably going to morph a little bit. It'll be a little different than it was. And as time always does to things, but yes, there, there are so many new opportunities for, you know, the next generations, they do things differently mm-hmm. than the way we learned it. So that's the other hope that I always have is that they'll, they'll find a new way to do it. I mean, I'm, I'm uh, hearing a lot about NFTs and there's a, there's a, a, a website now that is establishing a, a collaborative co-ownership of an NFT of your music. So uh, a, a, you know, using the, the blockchain and all the crypto stuff, but this could be the future. I mean, this is maybe the way you market your music. Uh, I had to worry about, you know, going out and, and doing um, uh, showcases for record companies. Uh, hoping they would sign you and give you an advance. And then, you know, you're going in the studio and record. Now you record it in your home. You have someone shoot a little video and you make an NFT and you put it on TikTok and to- boom, you're viral, you know? So I, I think the-, the younger generation understands that stuff and it will be organic for them to, to take what we did as a foundation and move it, forward to where i won't even know what you're talking
1: about (laughs) one thing though i gotta say that seems to have been uh carried over from the uh the prehistoric days is that choreographers still want to hear drums when i do workshops or you know when you're doing you know the the beginning of a new show they want you in the room because they have to dance to something and dancing to a musical director's foot stopping on the floor isn't good enough. So they still want the acoustic drums or if they're going to have electric drums, they still want to hear an actual drummer. So thankfully we can still work and you still have to know how to play and use your hands.
2: <laughs> I agree. I agree. There's hope. We're going to, we'll have to hit something for thousands of years to come because we've been, you know, our ancestors have been doing it since the beginning, you know, yeah. So, will in some form it will continue. I agree. Yes.
1: Well, on that note of positivity.
2: Yes. Thank <laughs> you.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Clayton. Enjoyed it.
1: Head over to the Broadway Drumming One On One YouTube page, where you'll find unedited conversations that I've had with some of your favorite musicians. On the YouTube page, you're going to find bonus content that I don't feature on my Instagram page or here on the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and click on that little bell at the top so that you'll be notified when a new video is uploaded. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for more.